Hey, I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. Retired four-star U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal believes the greatest risk to us is us. And this is good news. Why? Because it means we can do something about it. General McChrystal breaks down how and why we should think of risk management like an immune system and provides provocative examples of how to keep it performing well from the boardroom to the battlefield. He shares his nuggets of wisdom, his analysis of why a military-led mission like Operation Eagle Claw could fail, but the seemingly preposterous diplomat-led scheme laid out in the film Argo succeeded, and what his experiences have taught him about how all armed forces could better provide their members with workplaces free of sexual misconduct. Whether risk is a full-time preoccupation or an afterthought for you, I guarantee your own risk immune system will be in good shape after listening to the General's hard-won lessons. Thank you for joining me, Stan, and welcome to At Risk. Well, thanks for having me, Jody. I appreciate it. So your new book is a user's guide to risk. But as I was reading it, I couldn't help but wonder if it weren't also a clarion call to your country. That's a great question. It has a very ambitious title, as you see, Risk, a User's Guide. And what we're basically trying to not so subtly say is everybody is involved with risk. So everybody needs to think about it. I think my country absolutely needs to think about it but then so does every other country. Yes, that's for sure true. And so I think, you know, you kind of hinted at it even in that first uh, answer, but I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of risk thinking and risk management, is there something you're born with or can it be well-nurtured? Yeah, and that's a great question. It's almost like the leadership question, you know, born or taught. I think that certain people or everyone's born with a natural relationship to risk, how much you are comfortable taking risk. But I don't think it starts and ends there. I think that everybody can be taught to be more comfortable with risk, to think about it in a more disciplined and more effective way. So the answer is, I don't think we are just what we are. I think we can make ourselves and our organizations far better at it than we might otherwise be. And you provide this wonderful metaphor for for how to think about it and how to see yourself uh, inside risk. Uh, You use this metaphor of our risk immune system. Uh, Why is that metaphor helpful? How did you settle on it? Well, it's interesting backstory. Uh, Some years ago, I started teaching at Yale University. And I never taught before, but I'm up there preparing class. And a young lady walks in, and she's an immunologist at Yale. Brilliant lady. And she came in and she said, I want to talk about the human immune system. And I just looked at her because I knew nothing. And she said, I think it's the same as counterinsurgency, which I had been involved with in Afghanistan. And I said, how could they be the same? And she took me through an initial class on the fact that the human immune system is this miracle that we all have. And it detects the risks coming at us. It assesses each risk to determine if it's dangerous to us. 
it responds to those risks and it learns from it. And it does that about 10,000 times a day to microorganisms that assault our bodies that would otherwise make us sick or kill us. And yet, Jody, you and I don't get up in the morning worried about our risk immune system. We don't try to jumpstart it and say, I hope it works today. We just take it for granted unless it doesn't. And then if you think about it, the risk immune system doesn't really spend, you know, our human immune system doesn't spend time worrying about the risks out there because it can't do anything outside the bounds of the human body. So instead, it prepares itself, makes itself as healthy as possible to, to come to deal with whatever does show up. We started thinking about that in terms of overall risk because they did a poll some years ago about chief executive officers of major corporations. And they asked them, what are the biggest threats to your company? And they each listed about 10. And they were almost all external threats, things that can happen in the market or the, the economy, or the outside world. And yet when they looked at big organizations like corporations that failed, most of the time they failed because of some internal weakness. And it was interesting because we tend to want to look around the corner under rocks in the dark and try to predict what threats are going to come at us exactly when and what they'll look and feel like. And in reality, if we make our own organization stronger, if we build up the risk immune system that every organization has naturally, and it's at some level of health, we can be a lot more resilient. That's so fascinating. I, I, I really enjoyed the book and I really, uh, I found the metaphor very helpful as an entry point to really think about risk and to, as you bring out in the book, you know, you have these dials and, and you, can, you can work on them. Is there any early warning signs that maybe your risk immune system isn't as healthy as it should be? I think there are plenty of warning signs if you check it. And what we have is 10 factors, which we call risk control factors, which make up the system. And they are things such as the health of communication in an, inside an organization, the narrative. Is everybody aligned on a common story of what we are and why we are that? Our ability to use technology, how adaptable are we? Our ability to act, can we overcome inertia? Our ability to bring in diversity so that we get differing perspectives, our ability to overcome biases, our ability to adapt when needed. And of course, leadership, which sort of pulls them all together. And you say, well, I won't know until the crisis whether my system is working right. But that, that need not be. In fact, we can check inside our organization how good our communications are. We have a lot of ways you can check communications. We can do hard looks at diversity. And when I talk about diversity, I'm not talking about just gender or race or age. I'm talking about perspectives and experience, which really make up critical things. We can see how dependent we are on technology and sometimes dependent in ways we don't even understand. So there are all kinds of things which we can do to both measure our risk immune systems, but also to strengthen them before the major crises hit. And of course, we also have to go to school on every time we have been tested by outside threats, which is pretty often, and look at what we didn't get right and look at what we have to make stronger for next time. So when was your first introduction to risk? Um, when did you really start assessing situations using that lens? 
Well, it's interesting, Jody. I hate to make this admission, but starting at West Point when I was 17 years old, the military starts teaching you about risk and how you're going to prepare yourselves and your organization for the ultimate risk that's going to show up in combat and then also in training. And we had matrices and we had different processes to measure risk and quantify it and decide whether something was risky or not. But I also watched how we really dealt with it. And most of the time we would go through those steps, but in reality, we would do the assessment very much subjectively. And so that kind of woke me up to the fact throughout my career, we really weren't doing it as well as we could. And we were too often surprised. There was one event that happened early in my career. I was a young Green Beret first lieutenant that many people will remember. And that was the Iranian rescue mission in the spring of 1980. And we look at it in the book. And the reason it's so important is because the failure of the American effort to rescue the 53 Americans that were still being held hostage in the embassy in downtown Tehran really set U.S. special operations on a course which went through my entire career. What's most interesting to me about it is as the hostage crisis began in November of 1979, we have this really difficult diplomatic problem, which you'll remember Canada helped with, but we couldn't come to an agreement with the Iranian revolutionary government of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And so after several months, President Carter orders the military to first formulate a plan and then brief him on how they would go about trying to rescue the Americans. And they put together this very complicated plan that involved 10 steps to include flying in helicopters and fixed wing aircraft at night, down low below Iranian radar, landing at this piece of deserted desert in which the commandos would get out of the backs of the fixed-wing aircraft and get in the helicopters, which had had to fly in empty because of fuel limitations. Then the fixed-wing aircraft would come out. The rotary-wing aircraft would fly to an area outside the capital city of Tehran. But now nightfall is ending and morning's coming. So they have to hide this force, six big aircraft and almost 100 commandos, all day. And then the plan is trucks would come out from the city that late that afternoon and pick up the commandos. They would drive into the city, primarily to the embassy, but also to a foreign ministry location for a, a, sub, or a simultaneous rescue that had to occur. And they would do a hostage rescue raid. And because there were 53 hostages in a 27-acre large embassy compound where they didn't know exactly where they were, it was going to be difficult. And they expected there to be a firefight of some kind. And then you had to get the raid force and all the, the rescued hostages out. So the plan was to go across the street to the soccer stadium, secure the soccer stadium long enough to land the helicopters in there, pick up everybody, raid force, rescued hostages, and take off. And you say, well, problem solved. Well, no, because you don't have enough fuel to get out of Iran. And so they have to have another force seize another airfield in Iran, land fixed wing aircraft, take the helicopters with all the people there to that airfield, transload them and fly out. And it sounds pretty simple, straightforward, doesn't it? And then, of course, you're, you're rolling your eyes, as we all do. But here's what's interesting, as I studied it later after spending a, a lifetime in special ops. There were 10 phases to that operation, steps. And the nature of the operation was every step had to be successful to go on to the next step. And so even if you said that each step or phase of the operation had a 
not, let's, we'll call it a 90% chance of success, which is generous, but it was a good force put together for this. You say, okay, well, it's a 90% chance of success for the mission. Well, the answer is no. It's actually 0.9 times 0.9, 10 times, which is 0.345. And so when they went in to brief President Carter, he's a submariner by training. These two leaders of the operation, both combat veterans, and one is the leader of Delta Force, this big, uh, confident kind of guy. They go in and President Carter asks them, what's the probability of success? And they tell him, absolutely straight-faced, 85%. And so you, you compare that and you say, no, wait a minute, how did they get 85%? They got 85% because that's human nature. They wanted to rescue the American hostages. They were patriots. They wanted to get the job done. They had confidence in their force. They had rehearsed. And so they had reached this subjective 85%, even though in the harsh light of history, it's probably difficult to actually reach the same assessment. And then you say, well, why would President Carter, who's a very meticulous, analytical kind of person, why would he accept that? Well, he would accept it because he was spring-loaded to want it to succeed. He knew that he had to get the Americans out. He was in the last year of his what ultimately one term in office. And he knew if he didn't succeed at this, the chances of re-election were very low. And so he wanted to believe. And so in that room, 85% gets briefed, it gets accepted, the mission goes forward, of course, it fails sort of dramatically. And so when we think about risk, I don't say that those people were wrong or evil. I say they were human and they were about like all of us. And it should be a, a real caution for how we think about risk. And we shouldn't hide behind. Sometimes we put up numbers and we hide behind those numbers and decide something on an, on an entirely different uh, logic plane. So, of course, I couldn't help but think of the Argo mission, as you mentioned, where uh, the Canadians were involved in rescuing and assisting the, the retrieval of uh, some of the Americans who had been employed at the embassy and were trapped inside Iran. I couldn't help but think about it. But it was kind of a ridiculous plan, right? In some ways, you know, uh, we're going to pretend it's part of a movie set. <laughs> we're going to give you Canadian passports. Um, yet that mission uh, was successful. Um, just so curious to, to hear your insights, how a plan like that could be successful, whereas one that was involving, you know, uh, skilled uh, military people, uh, you know, in fact, and unfortunately failed. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating point, Judy, because we think of the Argo story, we'll just call it for that. It was kind of a preposterous plan. And yet I learned something when I was a young lieutenant. If it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. <laughs> and the idea that it was not something that the Iranians were likely to to see happening because it was sort of preposterous. But let's think about risk really sort of analytically here. First, the risk of that plan was significant and the risk of it failing and those people being then put in detention was high, but it wasn't likely that they would be killed. So there wasn't the likelihood that it would be a, an execution or something. They'd just probably be put in detention. 
But the people really accepting the greatest risk was your nation, Canada. And then you say, well, why would Canada do that? Canada is in Iran to a certain degree. They've got a, you know, a challenged relationship with the Iranian revolutionary government, but not like the United States. And if the plan had been uh, exposed, it's no doubt likely that Canadian citizens might have been taken hostage as well. And of course, undercut all of the hopes of maintaining any kind of relationship through the Iranian revolutionary government. So you say, well, why would Canada do it? And you say, well, because we're neighbors on the Northern Hemisphere and, and we're North America, we're both good countries, et cetera. Well, yeah. But if you think about it also, Canada made, I believe, made an assessment that their relationship to the United States was important enough long-term going forward that it could it would take this kind of a risk because that kind of thing which helps maintain relationships over the time are very, very important. But it's it's interesting to think of it that way because it wasn't just the Americans that were at risk during that moment. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That that was excellent. Um and I think you're right. I think it's why as Canadians, whenever there is a new president, we're always looking for that president to acknowledge that we're not just neighbors, but, you know, we're very close friends and that, and that, that we have a special relationship. Sometimes Canadians think that we're insecure. Uh, but, but I think it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's just important to, to acknowledge, you know, how intertwined our relationship is, not just by geography, but, but by, you know, choice and shared values. Well, that's right. And, you know, we sometimes run the risk of taking people in our lives for granted that are so reliable and so close to us. And of course, that's a big mistake. So I, I think you're exactly right. We have shared culture. We have shared economics. We have shared so many things. And yet we each have sovereignty, which we have to, to respect as well. But, but it is important to think of risks in your life and risks to business and maintaining those critical relationships is key. And in your retelling of Operation Eagle Claw, you know, what stands out, you talked about the optimism of the people involved in making the decision and building the plans. It's really hard uh, to say difficult things and nobody wants to be perceived to be a pessimist. Um, yeah, your reputation is you are the kind of person who delivers the news that needs to be delivered, uh, but may not be happily received. How do you get through those barriers? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question because any organization in which, and I'm going to call it groupthink here because that, you know, we refer to it in the book that really was first coined after the failure of the Bay of Pigs mission in 1961, you get a dynamic in any group. And that dynamic can often quash people from speaking their minds. There are a number of factors in it, but one is this idea that you want to be part of the group. So you don't want to be the one person that says the emperor's got no clothes or that the plan is stupid. And uh, there's this idea that you've got all the right minds in the room. And in fact, you may have huge gaps in perspectives. So you may actually get a bunch of people with essentially the same perspective on something. And yet you think because it's a group, you know, you're covering the waterfront. 
So I think organizations have got to first create processes, which as you are approaching an important decision, you get the right voices in the room, the right perspectives. Lehman Brothers famously had a chief risk officer, but then she wasn't brought into the room for most of the key investment decisions. And so they could check the block and say, yep, we've got a chief risk officer. We've got that covered. But in reality, it was an illusion. Enron did the same thing. And so you've got to put in place processes that force that, but do it genuinely. The second, you've got to create a culture, a culture in which it's not only okay to speak up, but it is not okay not to speak up. We have a Uh, an exercise we mentioned in the book that we used in the military, and I've seen it in business as well, called a pre-mortem. And what it means is you you do all the planning for something you're going to do. And then before execution, you get key players in the room to include junior players. And you say, okay, I want everybody to assume that we have failed. Now, tell us why we failed. And start with the most junior people in the room. And this is the important part because you don't want to pollute Um, they're thinking with what more senior people will say. And you say, where did we fail? And every once in a while, you'll have just this incredible epiphany. During the war in Iraq, a friend of mine was commanding the Corps, multinational Corps, which was about 50,000 people. They put together a big operation to move forces out to the Syrian border. And as they're doing this pre-mortem before the operation, the commanding general said, okay, I want everybody in it. A young captain in the back of the room raised his hand and said, I assume you know that this plan requires my truck drivers, he he ran truck drivers, requires my truck drivers to drive something like 18 or 20 hours a day for seven or eight days straight. And he goes, and that's a safety issue. And of course, you know, but he said, I assume, you know, of course, nobody in the room had recognized that, but you suddenly could have heard a pin drop because they knew that this was an absolute vulnerability of the plan. So they had to stop and change it. But if you hadn't had created the environment and the culture where that young officer felt the need to speak up, then the organization could blissfully have gone on to disaster. How often have we all been part of something where it goes badly and then afterwards somebody sidles up to you and goes, ah, I saw that coming. <laughs> and you go, wait a minute, well, then why didn't you speak up? And the response is, well, nobody asked me. And you've got to create that where there's an automatic ask. Yes, culture is so important. My first taste of risk as as a discipline was in the healthcare context. Uh, I worked at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and we talked about having a just culture. Um, Previously, the discussion in the healthcare context had been about a no-blame culture, recognizing that systems are often responsible for error. But then that got adjusted. And we started talking about a just culture where there's room for personal accountability, but married with the understanding that there are systems that produce error and unanticipated outcomes as well. What are the keys to building a positive risk culture? Yeah, it's it's a great experience, Jody. Um, I was on the board of directors of JetBlue Airlines for a number of years, and I was the chairman of the risk or the uh, safety committee, which is all about risk. 
And what you find out in safety issues in airlines is it almost never is a single cause of a problem. If an aircraft crashes or if you have some other accident, you almost never have, well, this bolt broke and the wing fell off. What you have is a series of events which cumulatively produce the vulnerability that happens. So for example, you might have a design flaw, but then you've got a whole system of testing and maintenance systems. And when you go back and peel the thing apart, you invariably find failures in a number of those things. And those things don't typically cause an event. And so we tend not to notice them. So what you've got to do is create a culture in which you are trying to pull out those kinds of weaknesses all the time, not just when you are going after a tragic crash or something. Uh, the ability to for people to want to say, wow, we just had a close call. We almost had this problem. But in an environment where there is the wrong culture, people will not, they want to cover it up. They say, wow, we dodged a bullet on that. We don't want to mention it. And it really gets into some interesting things with, with uh, healthcare and with things like airlines because you have concerns on the part of doctors or pilots and other crew that devices like cockpit recordings and whatnot will find them responsible and they will find them liable, even if a big accident doesn't occur. And so they'll be very reticent to have people listening in and, and going through and sort of grading their homework all the time. But we know from healthcare that there are so many things that need to be checked that you have to have that balance that says, one, we are going to have a process system that brings things to the light of the day, hopefully before they become huge issues. But there's also got to be individual responsibility as well. If you are not doing your part, in my opinion, nobody should get a buy. There, there ought to be responsibility individually and organizationally to, to live up to standards. Yes. And here in Canada, our armed forces are going through just a crisis in leadership related to uh, instances of sexual misconduct. And I think lots of people are looking to political leadership, uh, but are also, you know, searching for answers as to, you know, what is the way out of this? How do we restore uh, the culture of our armed forces um, such that they really value uh, the diversity of thought that's, you know, brought by uh, women uh, service members and that there's that that respect there, and and I'm not sure anyone has real clear answers at this point in Canada. Is there anything in your experience that you might point to as as a you know as the beginnings of a way for for, for us to really improve uh, the culture of our own armed forces? Yeah, of course. You know, the Canadian Armed Forces had the problem with the detainee issues some years ago. At least the parachute regiment did. And the United States has been through a number of these to include the sexual assault issue. And just to put an uh, explanation point at the end of that challenge, think if I am a parent and I've got a daughter who is thinking about going into the U.S. military. If I don't think she will be safe, 
It's a question of whether she'll be treated equally with opportunity. That, of course, is something I would want. But if I don't think she's going to be safe, I would absolutely stand in her way and try to dissuade her from doing that. And so just from a national security point, getting the talent we need into armed forces requires that we create an environment where people are comfortable themselves and then having their offspring be a part of that. The United States has struggled with this. And, and I can tell you from the position of an old soldier, first off, it has always been sacred to have uh, the commander responsible for all the legal adjudication, adjudication inside a unit. But we don't have a very good track record of it. The reality is inside the U.S. military, and I'm not saying people are evil, but we didn't create either the reality or the perception that commanders would create the right environment and then act on problems when they arose. And so there's been a move to take that out of the hands of military commanders and have separate kind of legal review of incidents like that. And to be honestly, honest, reluctantly, I agree. I think that's probably a good move because we have to build credibility in that system. People who are uh, in some way mistreated, but also people who in some way might be guilty ought to believe that that system is going to, it's going to find justice. And so if you are guilty of misconduct, you ought to know there's a very, very high likelihood you're going to be held to account. And of course, if you are a service member of, of either sex that might be a victim, you need to have belief that there's going to be that. But it's easier said than done because with every system like this, you know, it's, uh, it's a balance because accusation does not equal guilt. And so we, we have to have a system that is able to take accusations absolutely seriously, but make sure we don't create the Salem witch trials either, where we create this idea that, you know, just anybody proclaiming something is going to hold somebody to a level of guilt that they might not be guilty of. So this is going to be hard, but it's got to be something that we, we look at really hard in the United States. And I think it's absolutely true in the Canadian forces as well. Thank you for that. Yes, I do think um, I do support uh, a good process that can achieve a just result. And I think that every organization has to do that. Now, obviously, the military is going to have a more sophisticated adjudication system. Uh, but even, you know, uh, you know, uh, businesses also uh, have to have systems that are commensurate with their size uh, to ensure that they're safe places to work, as you say. You know, we, we send our kids, we walk into these places ourselves, and, and we need to have the confidence that should, you know, something terrible happen, that there are systems there to both prevent but also to ensure accountability uh, in the event of failures. You talked about a pre-mortem earlier, I wanted to uh, bring up the war game uh, Crimson Contagion that you discussed where the United States went through uh, a war game trying to cope with a pandemic. And they did this ahead of COVID-19, um, but perhaps didn't learn all the lessons uh, that they could have. Uh, what what contributed to to the I guess, you know, I hesitate to use the word failure, but, it, but, but I think that the failure to, to take on the lessons learned. 
Yeah. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. The United States has failed in the face of COVID-19. No other, there's no other grade for the performance than that. But we'll go back to crimson contagion because this is something that, that makes it less excusable. Uh, crimson contagion was a series of four exercises held in 2019 by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it was based on a scenario that may sound familiar. An American was in China traveling, became infected with a virus, didn't know it, flew back to the United States, not feeling well, got picked up at the airport by his son, who is that night going to go to a rock concert. The son takes the father home, father goes to bed, son is now infected, goes to the rock concert, and from there, and about 500,000 Americans ultimately die. And when they went through the exercises, the purpose of which was to determine where were the weaknesses in America's ability to deal with a potential pandemic, things like equipment stockages, coordination processes, knowledge and people in key places. And they had a number of players from across all of agencies and down at state and local levels as well. And they came out with a pretty painful conclusion that despite a very advanced healthcare system, we were not ready for a pandemic and that we needed to do a lot of things to get more prepared. And a 76-page after-action report was written. And then, of course, most of what came, as you mentioned, didn't get learned. They were learned on paper. They just weren't executed by the bureaucracy. Now, you could argue there wasn't enough time, but this wasn't a new problem. Actually, when you and I talk about COVID-19, we say, wow, what a surprise. We had this viral uh, infection come. We've never seen that before. And the answer is, of course we have. We've seen it repeatedly. Even in the last hundred years, we always remember that the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, but we get this threat on a constant basis and some threaten become pandemics. And so it isn't an unexpected threat. It's an inevitable threat. We know it's coming. It's just a matter of when. Now, we don't know that it's COVID-19, that particular novel coronavirus. We know one will, will do that. So we know the problem's coming. And then second, we know what to do about it because we have a good body of knowledge on public health and experience. So we know the playbook. And of course, it's reiterated in the findings of the Crimson Contagion After Action Report. And then this time, as never before in history, we get the good fortune of having scientists pull a rabbit out of a hat and we produce vaccines faster than any time since humankind began. And so we have those three factors. We know it's coming. We know what to do. And oh, by the way, we get a miracle vaccine. And yet in my country, more than 700,000 of our citizens have died. Only a small percentage of that really needed to be at risk. And where did we, where did we fail? Well, let's look at our risk immune system. Our risk immune system was suspect, expected to detect, assess, respond, and learn. Well, in reality... The detection happened partly in China, but then when we started to have the ability with data to detect it, we got our communication wrong. We sent mixed messages out to our population, and we actually helped create first a bit of skepticism and then almost a counter culture. And we should have had a narrative that was clear to everybody. What are we doing? A united national defense of humans in our country, and of course, part of a a global effort as well. And yet that narrative didn't get clarified. I would have used a wartime narrative. I would have said, we are all part of the common defense. 
and we all have our responsibility to do our part. And some efforts were made, but it certainly uh, did not perform well. Then the key about a pandemic is you have to act early, which means you have to act before it's obvious to all your population that this is a huge problem. You're essentially trying to stay ahead of exponential growth, infection. And that means sometimes leaders have got to make politically unpopular decisions when the population says, no, this isn't that big a problem. But that's what leaders are for. And we didn't do that. And so just by some delays there. And then, of course, you know, we had a number of biases that were brought in and we had this hardwired to want things to come back quickly. So this tension and there's a natural tension between how much do you shut down? How much do you keep the economy going? But we had this unwillingness or this bias to try to keep things open and to wish away the problem. And so as a consequence, all of these things came and the, uh, the ability of COVID-19 to hurt us was greater at the beginning and much longer than it should have been. And of course, it, it's still going on today. So of course, the final part of that is leadership. You need the right leadership to do this, not just the leadership at the national level. You need leadership at every level because we didn't fight COVID-19 as 50 United States. We fought it as 50 separate states or maybe many more municipalities, and none had the capability to take on something like a pandemic by themselves. So as a consequence, in many cases, we were separated or defeated in detail, as you'd say, in the military. Well, Canada has its share of lessons to learn, too. So, you know, looking at all of the great risk tools you outline uh, in a user's guide, what are the right tools or what's the best means of ensuring our respective nations and for us provinces and for you, the states and, and our municipalities, what's the best way of capturing those lessons learned and making sure that they get implemented? Because as you also said, we know there's going to be a next time. Yeah, there absolutely is, Jody. Here, here's the, the mindset at the beginning. The first thing I'd say is if we will admit that the greatest risk to us is us, because we really can't do much about all those external threats. They will come and they will come at a time and in a form that we're never completely able to predict or avoid. So they are going to come. And if we say the greatest risk to us is us because we leave ourselves vulnerable, the flip side of that is the greatest opportunity to protect ourselves is us. We have agency over those things. We can make ourselves, our organizations, better able to communicate. We can make them more aligned on a narrative. We can, we can look at all of the things like our use of technology and where are we vulnerable, whether our structure supports us being effective, the quality of our leadership. The good news in this is we're not victims. We don't have to be victims. And we shouldn't hide behind an excuse that says that these unex or, uh, unanticipated threats you know, blindsided us. If we make ourselves robust and resilient enough, then no matter what the threat is, we're in pretty good shape. And the reason is, if you think about the difference between a big natural disaster, we'll call it an earthquake or a, a volcano or something, or a weather incident, or a economic crisis, or a pandemic, 
about 80% of what we have to do effectively as an organization or society to do well is the same. We got to communicate well, we got to line on a narrative, we got to have good leadership, we got to leverage technology effectively. And it's only about 20% that is unique to that particular threat or crisis. And so if you get the 80% right and then you posture yourself to be effective at dealing with those unanticipated parts of whatever the unique aspects of a crisis are, you're in really good shape. But if the basics aren't there, it's like I tell people, you know, often they say, I'd like to be in better health. What's the secret to that? And I said, the secret is there is no secret. Get plenty of sleep, eat right, work out, don't drink too much, don't smoke. And there, there's several other things. And you have a very high probability of being healthy as a base so that other sicknesses and maladies will have much less effect on you. But people want a single you know, miracle drug or miracle avoidance thing. And really, it's just us as organizations, society, making ourselves more risk fit and just admit we've got risks and we own it. You've mentioned leadership a few times. I don't think there's been a more difficult time to, or or, wait, let me change that. Not difficult, but a more complex time to be a leader than today. Do we rely too much on leadership at the expense of other things? Uh, That's a great observation, Jody. And the answer is, I do think it's more difficult to be a leader now and more complex. And I think that we we want to rely on leaders. We have a natural tendency to believe the great woman or man theory of history. And that was the idea that few people come along every so often and they bend history's arc based upon their greatness. And there's a little bit of truth to that. Some people have a disproportionate effect, but the reality is it's much more the dynamic between leaders, the followers, and the context of the moment. I think that The reason it's so hard right now is because several things have happened. One, things have sped up. So there's much less time to to think about things, to plan, to prepare, and that sort of thing. The second is we created this two-bladed knife in technology, particularly information technology. As I tell people, we can now communicate faster than we can think, and we routinely do that. I actually would say that we have gotten, we've created this uh, technological marvel that is seen in everything from email and the web to social media and things like that, that allows us to push information so fast and so powerfully and so cheaply that we can affect how we think and what we believe and how we behave without really understanding how all that's happening. And so I would argue that technology has outpaced the maturity of humankind. And if we can't catch it, remember years ago, we had this fear that we had let the genie out of the bottle when we created nuclear capabilities at the atomic bomb. And then we found out for about 80 years now, we have tenuously been able to keep that in check and not destroy the world. I would argue we may be able to destroy the world now with our own inability to use information technology maturely because we can pass misinformation, which is unintentionally incorrect information, and we can pass disinformation, 
And both can be absolutely corrosive. And once people start believing things that are not true, and they become passionate about things that aren't thought through and aren't well-reasoned, even very good people can go in exactly the wrong direction. We go back to, of course, the examples of things like Adolf Hitler and his ability to take the otherwise very cultured German population, whip them up to a frenzy and almost destroy the world. And I don't like to compare too many other things to Nazi Germany, but the ability to pass information and to create in the minds and hearts of people this passion that may not be based in any kind of rational reality is terrifying. And how do we stop that? How do we balance that ability to do that with the idea that we have these very important freedom of speech and and, uh, other rights that we all respect? It just really is complex times. And I think that's why I appreciated your book so much, uh, because it really highlighted on the things we can do. What is in our control? We can sometimes think too much about the things that are outside of our control. Uh, but to refocus and redouble our efforts on the things that we can control is not only a way to manage our anxieties uh, about the threats we face, but it's also a way to push towards a better outcome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have to accept responsibility. You know, it's an absolute dodge if we say, well, it, it's not our fault, you know, and we're just unlucky. Maybe if you're gambling, you can get unlucky. But if you are living in a society and you haven't done all you can to make your organization and society as resilient as possible, you weren't unlucky, you were stupid. Incredibly fair. Stanley McChrystal, thank you so much for this gift that is your book. And thank you so much for uh, participating in this conversation with me and just bringing all of your experience to bear on this great range of topics. Appreciate it. You're so kind to have me, Jody. Thank you so much.